the Washington Tattoo Podcast, where we champion education, celebrate community, and unite the very best of humanity. Fueled by world-class military precision and cultural excellence, Washington Tattoo produces unforgettable immersive experiences, creating an atmosphere for people, organizations, and businesses to connect, network, and build impactful relationships. We invite you to listen to this episode of the Washington Tattoo Podcast, where the world's musical traditions come to life. Thank you so much for joining us. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Washington Tattoo Podcast. As usual, I have my good co-host, Stu Warrington. Stu, how are you today? Great. It's all sunny here for once. So, uh, yeah, nice nice to be stuck indoors. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And on the other side here, we also have, without really needing any introduction, is the acclaimed Brigadier David Alfrey. And David, you've been a great friend and mentor, and honestly, it's been such a pleasure to learn from you and to get your experience. But... You know, your background in military and then the Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo and events in general. Just it's such an honor to have you on today. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, huge pleasure to be with you. And uh, great, particularly after this great weekend, too. We've we've had a fabulous weekend with the coronation and still in the midst of it. So it's lovely to be with you. That's fantastic. And I think we definitely have to give, you know, maybe a three cheers, hip, hip, hooray for the king and the queen now, which is which was a coronation yesterday and a beautiful event. And honestly, I think probably a highlight for many people's lives. Oh, I mean, historic and wonderful on so many different levels and both from a sort of national heritage point of view, just extraordinary, but also some of the little personal moments in it and, and watching the King's face on the television when he was given three cheers uh, at him and the Queen from the armed services. That was a very, very special moment. And I, I have to say that was that was right up there. All sorts of dewy eyes in the Alfrey household. It was fantastic. <laughs> Well, and I think it's a brilliant move, too, because, I mean, all of us on here, I mean, we have military backgrounds and we understand the work and dedication that it takes to have an event come across that well. And Stu, you were definitely behind the scenes with a lot of the drums and things of that nature. I mean, so what what were some feelings that you had about the coronation yesterday? Yeah, I mean, it's great. You, you know, these coronations don't come around very often. So you, one, we're lucky to, to experience. But, you know, for, for the British Drum Company, we, we were lucky enough to supply the drums uh, for for the Royal Marines with the new King Cipher on, so that was that was something different as well. You know, so it's got different processes and you know changing badges up to to because it's not just a case of sticking it in. It, it's it's all got to be centralised and make sure it, it works well with the rest of the design. And you know, it's completely different on bass drums. So that whole process w- was great. Working with the Royal Marines, working closely, making sure that they were sending the right files across, and we were you know print the right files and attach them to the drum. So. No, it's a very proud day for not just myself, you know, as the marching division, but everybody in the factory who pretty much everybody had something to do with them drums at some point during the, the process. So seeing them out on the, on, you know, on the coronation was, was fantastic. That's super fantastic. I love it. And David, you were sharing that this past weekend you also were doing some events locally as well. So, I mean, all across the UK, there were also kind of, you know, micro events that were all happening as well. So can you share just what some of those events are kind of like? Well, it's if you're, I live in a lovely village in the middle of Wiltshire with modest broadband, 
and all the right sort of shops. And it's absolutely glorious. We've had an enormous Union flag hanging down the front of the house uh, for the last week. Um, and the village is absolutely absorbed by it. All the, lo the local crocheting group has done crochets over all the pillar boxes and everything else. And, and most people were absorbed by the television coverage yesterday. Um, BBC did just a fantastic job of covering that. And I think most people, we put the television on at half past seven in the morning and, and we turned it off at half, about half past ten and we're sort of feeding a variety of people as they sort of came through the house. And then today we've had uh, just really catching up with neighbours and friends locally on what everyone thought about it, meeting people on dog walks and so forth in the sunshine. Uh, and then this afternoon we've had a great picnic on the sports field, which has just been stunning. And uh, with sort of all the lovely things that you associate with a sort of village occasion, really, really memorable and, and tremendous sense of, of unity and community. I mean, just really special, actually. Wow. This, the national sense of pride has just got to be beaming yeah. in through the roof at the moment. Incredible. So um, really to dive into some questions here, David, I mean, I've been obviously a huge fan of your work for many, many years, and you've become a really good friend and supporter of what we're doing with the Washington Tattoo. And so I'd love to just start kind of at your beginning and, you know, your background in, in the military and a little bit just to get a little bit of a bite-sized story of, of your background and how you all first started in your profession. Yeah, so um, I joined the Army as a non-graduate sort of graduate back in 1978, a long time ago it seems now. Um, I was commissioned to the Scots Supreme Guards in 1979. And of course, with that comes a phenomenal musical heritage. Uh, I'm not a musician, but I've, I've got a, reason, a reasonably good commercial ear and I enjoy my music. I enjoy my music in all its genres, really. And regimentally, the pipes and at that time, regimental band music um, was every day our routine was set either by bugle calls or trumpet calls or pipe calls, whether it was commanding officer's orders or the start of parade in the morning and everything else. Our band, sadly, um, was disbanded uh, many, many years ago, and, and that gave us regimentally an extraordinary capability to deliver combined music, so pipes and drums and a brass military band. So we were we had some very talented directors of music and very talented pipe majors at that time. And we got very used to quite sophisticated arrangements of music. So not just the straightforward military marches and, 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 and so forth, but really sophisticated arrangements of those that, that enabled the musicians of all the disciplines to, to take part. And uh, the regiment has been producing records for many, many years. So they play at dinner, obviously, and the pipes and drums are held in, in great reverence, as were the military band. Um, so that's really been in my sort of blood all the way through and just appreciating it. In the cavalry, you have, as a young officer, you're invited to run a variety of parties and, and demonstrations and all the rest of it. And our parties were particularly sophisticated and wonderful. <laughs> And, and at the time, probably quite expensive. But I really cut my teeth on running events as a junior officer. And as you move up the sort of rank level, if, you, if you've got a sort of an aptitude and you enjoy those sorts of things, you get invited to run demonstrations, technical demonstrations, battle demonstrations and so forth. So I've done lots and lots of those. And inevitably, if you get asked to do those, you then get invited to do civic military events and, and uh, I got very involved in the sort of D-Day celebrations in, in one year or another and in the local community. So it was all sort of building up really 
um, I didn't know I was going to end up at the tattoo um, until, um, where are we now, sort of the year um, 2010, when I was invited to run for the job of chief executive and producer. And I was still in the army then and I've had a lovely career, not particularly distinguished, um, but just great fun, some wonderful people and things along the way, great experiences. And I ran for the appointment and to my great astonishment, uh, was offered the job and, and resigned the following morning um, wow. from my brother in, in, in uh, headquarters land, as it was then. I was the chief of staff for support command. And uh, my general was not the slightest bit surprised um, that I resigned on that morning. And then I, he very kindly allowed me to leave quite quickly. Hmm. So by um, April the following year, literally three months uh, beyond, I was, I was up in Edinburgh. Um, taking over from Ewan Loudon. And I'd known Mel Jemison, of course, as a regimental officer for, I mean, tens of years. He, he's been my commanding officer, my second in command. Um, he's been a great mentor and carer all the way sort of through and has taught me a great deal over the years. So I took over from Ewan Loudon at the Tattoo in, in 2011. And I think learnt quickly how to become um, a businessman. Of course, as a military officer, you're not a businessman. You don't really understand balance sheets and profit and loss and all those sort of charming things. Um, you, you think you're a leader. Um, you come out able to lead in a military context um, and you have a pretty good um, you have a pretty good style book on leadership. You can go from quite sort of transactional stuff, telling people to get a move on, through to quite gentle mentoring and, and, and um, sort of arm around shoulder type stuff. Um, I, I must admit, I find it quite challenging going into a civilian company. Um, you know, my last command had been a brigade in Scotland, and, and when we turned right, sort of everybody turned right. Um, <laughs> civilian companies don't sort of work like that. Some people go right, some go left, some, some don't bother to turn up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of very, so that was all quite humbling, really. I think there were only sort of 17 people in the two when I arrived, and, and very well established it was then. So that was all quite a journey. And then learning the craft of events, although you understand the sequencing and so forth of events, understanding the real detail of the technical side of putting on something like a tattoo is quite a journey yeah. and you have to really apply yourself to the, the craft of being a producer director um, yeah. whether that's light whether that's sound whether that's projections whether that's managing a, an event with all the licensing that's involved all the construction enormously expensive construction and production costs generally um, and then trying to sort of make a profit and, and, and sell your ticket price at a price that people can afford and, and feel that is good value for them. So it's right. been it's been a gripping journey, and uh, I've learned a lot during my time at the Tattoo. There's no doubt about that. So, so David, uh, obviously, there's lots of tattoos all over the world. You know, from from Basel through to Inverness and all over the world. What sets the Edinburgh Tattoo apart from the others? Is it because of the amount of time it's been going, or is it the backdrop, or you know, in your opinion, what makes it the tattoo? I think I think there's a number of ingredients to its success. And you're absolutely right. There's some wonderful tattoos around the world. And the genre is, is well known and well explored and has been for, for many years. The, the tattoo in Edinburgh is blessed with an absolutely incomparable backdrop. There's, there's little doubt about that. You know, there's not so many people who can sort of call on a 400-year-old castle and everything involves it has its own challenges that because there's not that many entrances and it's it's quite constricted and difficult to work 
you can't get in till 6.30 at night because the general public are in there. And it's, it's quite a, it's a sporting place to run an event. But I think, so I think that backdrop is very important. I think the tattoos, I don't underestimate the BBC coverage of the tattoo. It, it's been absolutely brilliantly photographed and, and edited and broadcast by the BBC for many, many years. And that the reach that great broadcast gets to is is really special. Some people, you know, have, have, it's become the sort of, um, what do they call it, a, an appointment to view, which is the absolute prize in television, where people stop what else they're doing and they actually turn up and say, you know, for example, in Australia, New Zealand, on, on you know, they, have, they get the show at the same time every year. And that mm. assures an audience that is multi-generational. So... Um, and it was always a great prize if we got an overseas licensing for the BBC. That was always a you know, huge prize for us. And so the real, real pleasure and privilege of looking after the tattoo, which is very much an institution, it's not a show, it's an institution. As a producer, you're, you're a caretaker. You're not, uh, you're not some wide boy. You know, you are, you're a caretaker. And I, I, I really felt the weight of that. Yeah. Um, you'll get four generations in the audience on a, on a given evening. And it's, that is amazing, that. Yeah. Whilst people will not, they'll come to it when they're quite young, when they come with their grandparents, they, they go into the sort of cool phase in life where we have other priorities and they don't always turn up, you know, in the teens and so forth. But they, when they have their own families, they'll, they'll come back because it's got great memories. So I think that, and I think I also don't underestimate our relationships in business with the travel trade, um, and all those, all those hundreds of thousands of people who are linked with tourism in Scotland. You know, we were very generously described as an attack brand for Scotland mm. by Visit Scotland. So our relationship with tourism and, and everything was very, very close. And, and tourism into, into Edinburgh and to Scotland more generally. So I, I don't underestimate that some incredible American, you know, travel companies who, who we, our relationship was really close. And, you know, they'd always be um, talking to us about what was the show going to be doing next year and the year after. And, and their customers consistently used to enjoy coming and used to enjoy the customer service. So the Tattoo family, I think, was the sort of, you know, the third really big bit that yeah. makes it successful. It is a family and it feels like a family. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously you haven't performed there myself a number of times it's you know when you get this before the the, the tattoo even starts before the you, the you know the open fanfare uh alistair the narrator goes around is anybody here from hong kong or and you just you know you hear them cheers it, it might be one person might be two people but there's so many countries represented in that audience every night and it's it's the same every night it's not there's no cheer on one night compared to the other every night there's somebody from pretty much everywhere he says it's it just goes to show you know what a global brand it is and, and, well, like, and you, you, you're absolutely right Stu and, and at, I think at our high point I think 46% of the audience was international wow. and that is a it's a most tremendous convening of folk you know to share in in each other's culture and I say each other's because although the show is quintessentially Scottish it's quintessentially British as well but the actors that are coming in from all over the world, who are both military and folkloric, that civil performers, artists, and so forth, you're getting a real sense of those countries' culture and heritage. And I think that was very, very precious. A real sense of mutual respect, not only between the performers, but also between the performers and the audience. And, and, and it was really, I think, just really heartwarming, actually, and, and really precious, really precious. 
Incredible. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of families going, and like you said, once once the younger generation are older and got their own families, they'll be taken there, and it's just like a continuous thing that you know when we were young, we used to go to the Edinburgh Tattoo, and it it just boils on and bubbles over, and you know, yeah, and that's your audience. It does. You don't realise that you're going to have the same audience; they're just slightly older mm-hmm. in age, but they've been going for thirty or forty years. And, and that, of course, gives you a tremendous responsibility to deliver for them what they want. And, you, you know, I was always learned in, in business, the first thing is your customer. I, I hate thinking of somebody in that sort of transactional way where they sort of pay money to go for a ticket. But your, your customer, your family, your, the people who come to your show, you've got to really understand acutely what they want and what they get from. And, and I used to very much enjoy talking to members of the audience, both before they come into the show and, and afterwards on leaving, and really trying to get a sense of the bits that got them in the head and in the heart. Yeah. Um, you know, what were the bits that were really special? And then as a designer, you were trying to make sure that the show included those. It means you can't take, you can't do flights of fancy. You, you've got to be quite conservative in all of this. You've got to be conservative in the way you, you present your lighting your sound your your projection your music in particular um you know what do your what do your audience want what are they looking forward to um and they do unquestionably look forward to particular pieces of music and uh, one was always under considerable pressure to include particular items particularly <laughs> scottish music every single year and we used to have sort of quite a quite a discussion about, gosh, are we going to include Highland Cathedral <laughs> again? You know, which was when there was always some other thing that you, you know, spent a lot of time and money and energy building up some new wonderful arrangement, which you thought was much better. And of course, the audience still wanted, they wanted that moment that was associated with one of those great tunes, whether it was the British Grenadiers or, you know, Highland Laddie or, you know, all those tunes, all of which are deep in people's memory, they're deep in people's culture. I mean, that must be quite hard because, you know, Highland Cathedral is, a, is definitely a favourite with anybody all over the world. So, you know, h- how do you decide when and when not to include it? Because, you know, you come under pressure from people saying, well, they didn't play that. And Yeah. Uh, the answer is you, you, you've got to be very respectful of that expectation. I, I followed the rule that if I had something that I thought was better in that particular year, it was my duty to share that. Um, there are occasions when the programme quite naturally desires a special tune like that. So, it, you know, Amazing Grace or, I mean, Going Home for me was a very special Mark Knopfler's track, which I absolutely adore. And, you know, still it's one of my sort of great, you know, Desert Island tracks. Um, all those lovely tunes that you have, you, you've got to balance it. You can't do the same thing every year, not least because your performers like to be challenged with new arrangements, new ways of doing it. So your your arranger composers are really important people and your conversations with them, I think, were so interesting and so fulfilling. And I used to I've had, you know, one or two extraordinary arranger composers who worked with me. And I would say, look, I'd love to do this particular track. You know, can we look at how we might arrange that? And occasionally I would tell yes, David, that's absolutely lovely. That's a super song, but it sort of doesn't go anywhere musically. And so it's been marvelous. I played it on my stereo this morning, gain setting nine, and it really you know, got me. Yes, David, but musically it's not that interesting. You're fine with it because it has a particular... And you'd have those discussions with, with your technical people. And you had to listen. You had to listen to them. 
um, because so often they would be professionally correct. They, they would offer great advice. So although one's got sort of strong musical opinions, one's got strong creative opinions, you know, I'm obsessed by colour and sound and touch and smell and all those other lovely senses that you put into a show. You've got to keep your lugs open to what, what the audience want, what your experts are telling you, and try and balance all of that out to get a, just a great programme every year. Yeah, I think it's very interesting you bring up this almost philosophical conversation because you start to think about the performers that are on the field are some of your biggest brand ambassadors. Oh, if the performers amazing. have a fantastic time or the performers are playing great music, you can feel it. If the arrangements are flat and the arrangements are not strong or the music is not chosen wisely, you can hear it in the performance, which translates oh, to the audience. Absolutely. And what's I think incredibly exciting, and, and <clears throat> you know, I'm now bald and, and getting slightly thicker around the waist. I'm now past the 60s, so I'm allowed to be a bit more sentimental. <laughs> I, I think um, I, I remember very, very vividly one particular night I was talking with, with Stevie Small, who, who you all know, and there was something about the music behind us that you could feel. We'd listened to every performance going through, and both of us were talking out of sight of the arena, right, you know, under the stands. And there was something, both of us felt the hairs on the back of the neck go up and, God, what's that? Why is that 5% better than what it was before? Mm. And as we put our head round the entrance, the entire audience stood up in the middle of the track. Now, I have to say, that was just so special. Now, why did they stand up and choose that particular moment to stand up? It wasn't musically the pinnacle of the track. It wasn't some great interval. It wasn't a change between two scenes. It was just something in it which had been delivered by the whole story, whether it's mm. sound, light, all those senses being applied to it. And I remember it just really well and came back thinking, wow, you know, God, if you could build a show where every single moment, of course, you don't want every single moment right, because there right. are then no highs and lows. So you yeah. can take people's mood through the show and, and, and try and generate different moods and feelings as you go through the 90 minutes. I love it. I think that's so special that you bring that up because professionally, if you find someone who's successful professionally, there's probably two to three moments in their whole career where everything clicked. Everything hit everything it was supposed to. You felt that feeling of mastery in that moment. And yes, it's preparation. It's all of the product that you're working on prior to to execute a particular you know, delivery of either an event or a speech or something like that. And so I think any professional has a few moments that are so special and when they feel it and they realize it and they have the hair stand up on the back of their neck, they want more of it. And yeah. there's always this recipe that is almost sometimes impossible to replicate because sometimes you just can't, you can't replicate that feeling. And it's an yeah. audience that night. It's a particular mood, the lighting. Maybe somebody took that crescendo in a different, uh, a different volume that one night. But it's always small details that I think when you put levels of excellence and professionals together that this magic starts to happen on a performance field and you only get that when you do the preparation work prior to and you have those conversations about the type of music the specific bands that are there the story that's there the colors that whole feeling it's very hard to put that into a spreadsheet and say here is how i explain this by the numbers but if you're there in that moment you feel it 
and there's no, there are almost no words that you can put to it. It's just no, a feeling. You're very right because it's also, and I'm going to be controversial for a moment. Mm. It, it's it's an analog uh, process. This it's not digital. So mm. if you uh, have decided that you want to have, you know, a particular sequence of special effects or lighting or projection or something going on that is absolutely timed to the music. The music changes every single night, every single night. And if you're listening to it really carefully, as most conductors are, they will they will change it. Mm. They'll change it depending on whether they had a good day or not have a band. Now, the click is fine. The click will keep everybody alive. But if you time everything digitally, the, it's like digital sound. It has, it loses a sort of depth. And, and I was very keen as part of my craft and learning to run the show by the black dots on the score. Mm. Now, it's really, really difficult to do that. In fact, the more complicated the show becomes, the more difficult it is. And the temptation is to have it all on a, on a you know, a time sequence so that everything sort of happens and you're timing how long a particular shell goes up in the fireworks and how long it takes. But the lovely thing I found was having systems that would pick out something really special. And you as a musician will know what I mean by an obligato. Mm. I was obsessed with a little little thing that would go on in, in, in the orchestration. I would just absolutely love to hear a little piece of trumpet or a little piece of piano or a little piece of guitar that just gave it a highlight, rather like a painter puts the white in the eyes mm. of a portrait. It was something like that. And that, for me, was complete magic. And I would judge the, the quality of the sound and the lighting by how that particular effect yeah. was delivered. If yeah. that obligato came out at exactly the right moment as the, as the projection changed and somebody did something special on the field, I think that was just you know, what, a, what a pleasure. What a pleasure. But that's a brilliant concept because when you think about that level of detail, that means maybe not everything is figured out, but you have most of the other big picture items already planned. They're already worked out for the most part. And you can put that mind, those mental calories into that detail. And Mm -hmm. that already right there means you've got a great team. You've now got the right arrangements. You've got great musicians there that can do it. And I just one small quick story. I remember student teaching in Plano East Senior High School in Texas. Fantastic marching band program, fantastic music program. And I was a young teacher conducting the wind, the wind ensemble. And we were doing, you know, Granger Irish tune. And I was learning how to do an entrance with my baton, whether it was going to be a, a a more staccato entrance, a more legato entrance, a marcato entrance. And we were talking about tongue articulations on the flute, on the piccolo, on the tuba, and the type of articulation. Is it going to be a la, a da, a ta, and all of those things mechanically that would happen on, on within an embouchure with the tongue t- to have the articulation. And these kids that were 17, 18 years old, every time I would move my baton, either in a legato motion, a mercato motion, or a staccato motion, those kids executed on that level. And so what was mind-blowing to me was that if you are able to put in your process a way to get people to that level of excellence, these little tiny details, 
you can start to color in this show and these performances mm-hmm. and get people's hair on the back of their necks to stand yeah. up because you thought of you know the white in the eye of a painter or the obligados or you know a glissando with a, a set of chimes or or bells that you're thinking you want to add as a, as a piece of color where most people are still going the buses aren't here yet uh hey food is in a half an hour i mean that's, so i mean that's that level of detail difference between you know yeah. your productions and and i think just where your mind is and i think that's just so valuable i think it's it's a lovely thing i mean i've Many people would sort of accuse me of being probably too detailed and too interested in those little things. But once you're sort of involved in a project and, and it is a passion and something like running these tattoos, they, they sort of all ready to work. They've got very large numbers of people. They're very expensive. Um, they, they involve an awful lot of people agreeing to go in a single direction. And that's really tough. Mm. Um, and it's not just about rehearsing them to go in one direction. It's it's really just encouraging everybody to take part in a sort of in a unitary activity, which I think is is really special if you can get it. And right. I I used to get very emotional about the show because I knew that every single person who was on the show was absolutely endeavouring to give of their very best. And there was nobody who's, who was a passenger in it. And, and when you get to that point, you get just extraordinary performance. And watching people's faces, I used to try and get down the Royal Mile after the show to say thank you to the cast as they marched down the hill. The sense of, you know, we just done another amazing performance to actually to say thank you at the end of the evening because you, you, You've got no way of communicating to 1,400 people. You can't say thank you for every single one, but you're trying to say a corporate thank you for all the creative energy, the professionalism, the preparation, all the shining of the uniform, the brushing, and everybody looking amazing. And if you could get that all to come to the unitary activity, your audience could not help but be involved and go away again. Bloody hell, that was just epic and and if it's epic if it exceeds expectations people will go do you know that's one of the best things i've seen all year and my god i'm going to tell my friends about it and i'm going to come back next year with four other people and as soon as you get into that cycle where everybody's involved in that your communication one-to-one to people who've been to the show is exponential mm. yes you're going to have to buy marketing and buy communications and all those other professional things that you must now do but one to one, there's nothing better than a taxi driver coming, you know, talking to you and saying, "I came to the show last year. It was amazing." <laughs> I mean, that's just fantastic when that happens. You, you think, "Oh, well, all that work and sweat and misery was was worth it." Yeah. So I've actually got a little story from the uh, the 2011 tatty, which I believe was your your first one, David. So yeah. uh, myself and a, another beagler, we. Uh, co-wrote the, the, the drum static for the Royal Marines display. And, you know, you run about these little special bits that you put in. And this whole drum display was built on the very end, the very last phrase where we, we did a, a stick ripple. We put a Rallentando in, which never been done before. So this ripple eventually slowed down and everybody had to be working together. Uh, but initially, the shape was a hollow square. But at some point, we had to get into a straight line. And we, we just did like a little cadence to get in that straight line. And it was literally nothing. It, we, you know, we didn't even think twice about it. But on that first night, when we moved into that straight line, the audience went absolutely mental. Like, the, the crowd went mad. And we just thought, 
you know, it's the first night, it's friends and family. And, yeah, you know, it wasn't it, but the appreciation of that complexity. Absolutely. Every night that happened, and we just thought, you know, this little thing, we didn't even think about it. We just thought we're getting into a straight line to, to build up for the big one, you know, and that's, and this is, you know, it's these little magic moments that you don't even know we're going to appear, but that raised everybody's morale for the entire time. Yeah, you're, you're, you're so right, and you can sort of feel it. I used to watch the what we used to call the unveil. We, we joined up the mass bands and the mass pipes and drums every night. And the, the pipes and drums used to enter. I don't know whether they still do it. They used to come out of the dark. And at the, the, the strike of the pipes, we'd turn all the lights up. And the pipes and drums would be sort of there. And you could hear the whole audience go, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, just wonderful, as you say, having something really, really simple that just catches people a bit unawares and they, you know, my God, you, and it has to be right. Everybody's got to be obsessing about that moment and is it coming right? And uh, that's, that's what makes Tattoo so special because they're so big. There's so many people trying to go in that one direction. For rock bands, you might have 10, 12 folk, you know, all playing the thing, but 1,400, anything up to six or 800 who might be musicians. Yeah. What yeah. a thing. And musicians have all got, you know, huge egos, haven't you? You've all got enormous <laughs> egos. And, you know. <laughs> you try to... it, it's funny you touch on bringing the pipes and drums in because, you know, previously, or just earlier on, we were talking about, you know, trying to please the audience using the same music. And normally you'd use something like 79 Farewell to Gibraltar, but that year it was the How to Train Your Dragon, you know, and that was yeah. completely different and that went down really well. And, and then, you know how... how how popular that tune's been because it, in later years, other acts are using it within their display. And all the time, this is now a, a regular tune that everybody likes, you know, whether it's, you know, the New Zealand Army Band or whether it's the Lockheed Dancers, they, they're all now using it in there. So it's, it just goes to show that, you know, a change from something that's been steeped in, in, in history for all these years, a quick change. And then now well, that's history. We heard it yesterday. We heard the pipe tune, which I hadn't heard before, Charles III. Um, the pipe tune played by the pipes and drums uh, before His Majesty came out um, to to see his armed forces, and uh, that I that really I was really seized by that. I hadn't heard that track before, and no. I, I'm sort of now scratching about to discover who wrote it, where it came <laughs> from, what's its what's its story. Yeah, oh, God, no. Well, you can get a sense of our energies of these things, <laughs> isn't that great? Through the screens, love it. What's incredible, so David, you've seen groups from all around the world. Are there a couple highlight groups that really stick out to you that have been some of your favorite to either work with or just to listen to? Yeah, it's it's, it's a question I, fun enough, have been asked a lot. Um, and uh, I, do you know, I can't I can't say that a particular group is my favorite. Um, I, I genuinely can't do that because. Um, I found over the nearly 10 years that I ran it that everybody was capable of producing something special, something sometimes quite modest. And so my bits of the show used to be a little bit of each act. And it didn't matter how um, modest some part was being played that had something special and I, I i love for instance you know some of the drum pieces you know washington is all about drums you know your background stew's background you're, you're drummers drummers is a universal language and and drumming uh, you know i'm i'm not a drummer i can't hold a beat for instance but when that sort of really works that's really special when any of the great drummers in the world work I was very privileged to be part of bringing the Southwest or Southwest Pacific Island nations together in Sydney for our great stadium show there. 
And we got an awful lot of very disparate islanders to come together and play in a single percussion track, which had been specially written. And that was incredibly special because we got all that anthropology coming into their collective instruments. And I don't think anyone's really tried to do that before or since. I mean, perhaps they might have done. But that was incredibly special. I love listening to a Mongolian throat singer. Um, I absolutely adored listening to a, a particular American voice. Um, we had, um, oh, there's all sorts of things that are in there. And you were looking for those little special things rather than a particular act. And you're right, some acts did take an awful lot of energy to bring to the show, whether it's bureaucratic hurdles or people not agreeing that it was a sort of good idea. And, and I've got some you know, appalling stories of how difficult some of that was. <laughs> but getting them all together and they come off the, the aeroplane and say, right, this is what we're going to play. And you look at it and go, oh, God, really? Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's going to work at all. And then you have to sort of go to the contingent commander and say, look, I, I know that a huge amount of work's gone into this, but actually we need to adapt this. This is, this is just absolutely not going to work in the way you want it. May I suggest we do A, B, and C? And then having that tremendously grown-up discussion with him and or her, and then they were going to have to go back to their contingent and say, the brute has now asked us to change this. The last three months have been... To nothing. So um, there we go. Um, yeah, extraordinary, actually. And uh, I think all of them are very special. And I've still got an address book full of wonderful people around the world who, you know, will call from time to time. And that's that goes back to this tattoo family thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very, very special. And of course, our own bands, which, you know, we're very proud of, you know, just like the great American bands, we're very proud of those. And I love watching my own regiment on parade. That's always, you know, it's always pretty special. So, David, you just touching base on that, you've mentioned obviously some of these great bands and performances you brought across. Is there any of that you wanted to bring across, but never it never materialised? Yeah, I was the the seventy fifth anniversary show was going to be very very special. It was going to be my last show in twenty twenty, and of course, COVID drove a coach and horses through that. And I got all sorts of plans to bring groups together, and um, in particular, I was very excited about bringing Zambia to the show. Um, we'd um, talked at great length about celebrating their great river, the Zambezi. And I'd got a super act in, in embryonic form when we, we closed the show about all the peoples that lived down the banks of the Zambezi of how it bubbled out of the ground in, in northern Zambia and then eventually goes over the, the falls. Mm. And um, that was all going to tie up with a great sea of platinum pouring out of a castle. You could just imagine <laughs> all the sort of silliness that was going to go into that. And I was very, I was obsessed by it. And I, I love the time in Zambia talking to the, their military and to their folkloric performers. And I, I would love to have, I would love to have delivered that 75th anniversary. It's a huge disappointment when we had to turn it off because of, of COVID, because the moment was was lost. All the yeah. pre-work and the creative frame that had gone into that show was lost. And, uh, and that was a real shame. So I, I'd love to have seen that. I mean, we were excited by that show. The whole thing went in the dustbin in one day. Awful. So there's a lot of uh, uh, organisation goes in into the, the Edinburgh Tattoo, as you know, but how does that compare to when you move it abroad, 
to like New Zealand mm. or Australia? How, how much more difficult? Is yeah, that? so it's it's um, when you're doing it in Edinburgh, you, you, the whole thing is a known quantity. You you know exactly how many people you can fit into a given space. It's a, it's a very well oiled piece, and and every single year we go through a rather tedious but important process of lessons learned, where we absolutely boil everything that's happened and we draw out even minute timing changes that will will make it work better or process changes so in edinburgh it's all a sort of it's it's all pretty predictable when you when you go abroad um you are a dealing with a very different venue and and that's you're having to construct a castle if you're taking on the stadium and so that's got a sort of level of complexity and cost which is quite exciting um but also you're dealing with different partners and, and all of those partners will have different expectations, different ways of doing things. Um, you know, their local technical experts will be very different to the ones you know and love. And so there's a, there's a very considerable leadership and managerial challenge in going abroad. It, it, doesn't, it, it, it doesn't detract from it at all, but it makes it more challenging as the leader, certainly, to try and bring all those new people onto your single sense of unified purpose. Um, and many of them will be very, very experienced professionals who are very used to doing it in a particular way. And I think sometimes find it unsettling the sort of intimacy with which you had developed with your act. You would go up to a particular drum major and say, you know, actually that didn't work terribly well. We're going to do it this way. And, and but no more would need to be said. Yeah, and because it wasn't you know conducted like a ceremony or the rehearsals weren't like sorry, so that was quite challenging. But when you go abroad, um, if you're sort of brave enough and you're allowed to go to a stadium, the scale of stadium shows is just enormous. And I remember vividly going to the Westpac Stadium in in Wellington, the Cape Tin, which is a lovely, lovely stadium anyway, and we were partnering with with the Wellington Festival. And um, we decided we were going to play Pavako Kuriana, the lovely, lovely Kiwi Māori um, tune, which everybody learns in primary school. So the entire nation knows this track, mm. and it's just epic. And um, we had an awful lot of Māori on parade, I mean, a battalion. And I, I can quite see why we had to have a treaty uh, when we were, you know, fighting with the Māori. They really were, A, very big, and B, very frightening. Enormous amount of bone involved. Just tremendous people. Anyway, we started the opening part of this track, and there was a sort of burr going on in the audio. And I couldn't work out what it was. I turned to the sound guy and said, have we got something weird happening? Is this uh, where the mics are running? Um, you know, what is it? What's this burr? Uh, and he just looked and he said, no, it's the audience. And the whole audience were humming this track under their breath. Wow. Which is just amazing when Incredible. you get a stadium full of people doing that. And it wasn't, they weren't singing it. They were just murmuring it to themselves. Mm. But when you add it up, however many people that was, it produces incredible soundscape on top of which the performers and, and the Maori soloists and everybody else were going were to play. So I think, yeah, going abroad is, is always more exciting. Um, it's never quite Edinburgh, but it also does something, you know, the chance of doing something huge and different is, is and it's really good for performers too. Performers love going 
abroad. It never runs quite as smoothly as it does at home. And, and you know, I always used to say to performers, you know, prepared to be mucked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is going to be, you know, you're going to be muck, mucked around whilst this is happening because it will not run like clockwork. Right. We'll do our be- absolute best, but prepared to be mucked about and, and enjoy it. Celebrate being mucked around. So t- just touching on that quickly, because this is something I want to know myself. Uh, has there ever been a time where uh, the Edinburgh Tattoo or, you know, when it's been a Broadway, it's gone pretty horribly wrong and, and not to plan? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, there have been. I, I'm not going to share them with you, but I, I have. Um, it wasn't in Edinburgh, actually. Um, but we, we did. We, we've had some pretty challenging moments abroad where bits of the design just didn't work and you knew they hadn't worked. Yeah, and you watch a rehearsal, and you realise the enormity of it not working. Mm, right, okay. you know, you'd be within forty-eight hours of, of an opening night, and if something wasn't right, it was eye-wateringly not right. Yeah, and you'd have to solve it. And I'm not going. I'm not going to share what those moments were, but they are absolutely heart-stopping. I can imagine because you you then you really do need to step up as a yeah. leader. You, you absolutely need to step up, and I've always said it's easy, you know, management is about taking people to the pub, you can sort of go and it's all sunny and everyone's going to go to a drink and sandwiches all marvellous. Leadership is when, you know, the temperature's dropping, you're eating the horses and, and the partisans are attacking you. And, <laughs> and, and, and you sort of know those moments from military life where it's going completely pear-shaped and, and you cannot be overcome by the circumstances. Mm-hmm. You have to bloody well deal with it. Yeah, and and that's that's really tough sometimes, and people sometimes get a bit wounded by that because you have to you have to be pretty transactional in your leadership when that happens. Um, yeah, no, thankfully quite rare. Fun things like I remember somebody a rifle being dropped once by the by the King's Guard or somebody from the Norwegian King's Guard. Very rarely a rifle was dropped, and of course the great thing is is <laughs> leave it there until there's a cap. Everyone walks over it and, and marches over it and just leave the damn thing there until there's a sort of safe moment. One of our team decided they wanted to recover this thing and we watched him run across the Esplanade to pick up this rifle. And I was mentally, from the production level, calculating his rate of travel and the angle of attack with <laughs> the returning King's Guard and this rifle. And as you know on a ship, the bearing wasn't changing. <laughs> and he was, and they went absolutely smack straight over the top of him, literally to roars of applause from the production <laughs> level because he should have left it wretchedly alone. Um, but it was, you know, these things are happily rare because people are really good at adapting. If something unspeakable is is, is happening, people really do come up to the mark and. I know in, in over the years that are we, there are lots and lots of midnight and small hours work that have gone into solving a problem. You can't contract for somebody to sit there at three o'clock in the morning and, and sort lights. Mm. You can't contract for that. No. It just requires a human being to, to say, Do you know, I want to get this right. And, and knowing that they've got to hit those marks. Yeah. Incredible. So I would ask this, if you would give advice to a aspiring tattoo, what are what are some things that you would share that would be kind of maybe high level, maybe some details? What are some what what are things that you would advise and say, hey, if I would do this all over again, I had to start from scratch. What are some thoughts that you have? I think um, well, let me deal with the institu- Let me deal with the institution first. I think 
the new endeavor has got to really understand its audience. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the business you know, imperative of know your customer, know, know your product, know your customer, know what you're, what you're setting out, know what the proposition is. I, I think you have to really, really, really understand that. And, and there's no substitute for getting around the park and talking to people and, and doing the research and doing all the rest of it. I, I think that's really, really important. Um, I think um, your numbers are very, very important. And although, you know, as a creative director or producer, you're obsessed with wonderful lights and colours and, you know, pretty informed and all the other things. But if the finance does not work, it's all for naught. So you need to be pretty much on top of your numbers. And you need, I think, at least I do, because um, I don't have a brain that finds it easy to look at spreadsheets and so forth. You need somebody close by who is absolutely left brain dominant, Hmm. who just understands the horrible detail of those budgets. And you've got to listen to them. You, You can play fast and loose. You can be adaptive. You can be flexible. You can make decisions about changing resources and priorities and all that sort of blah. But you've got to have somebody who really, really does the maths because there is some, there's real truths in the maths. And tattoos as a business model shouldn't work. You know, you put 1,400 people, you, you have to feed and accommodate and transport them. You, you know, this, that's why, you know, one-man comedian shows are so thoroughly successful. You put one bloke and a few lights, <laughs> away you go. You know, that, that builds houses and gives people yachts. Uh, tattoos <laughs> don't. And, and sometimes the margins for success can be quite narrow. You know, every ticket is a special thing. You, you've gone to great effort to sell a ticket. And I never took that for granted. I used to lie awake um, reflecting on the number of, of tickets that had been sold and what the break-even point was. Um, and, it, you know, years, you know, although the tattoo has been very successful, there were years when it was, you know, tough game, but to work very hard mm-hmm. to reach markets and reach new markets in order to make sure that those things happen. Um, so I think that you've got to have a great team. Third point, I think, is, is absolutely and, and special. The team has to be special. It's not just about hiring professionals. The world is is covered in professional um, people who you can contract, but you need special people to do something like a tattoo because it it sort of goes outside the, the sort of bounds of so many activities. And I think you have to understand your values. I think your the whole business of authenticity of of you know what is it your lies at the heart of your organisation. What is it? What's really important? What is your vision? What are your values? What are your standards? And I think the final thing is, as a, depending on the role that you know you or, or anyone else is taking in Washington, if you're going to be a, a chief executive and a producer and a creative director, whether those three roles are, are split or whether they're one, those three people really have to know their craft. Mm. And I think, you know, I learned along the way, and there were many, many things which I didn't and still don't know about. Um, the physics of sound, the, the light levels required for, for television versus live. Um, you know, how did sound behave in strange, strange amphitheatres? And then how does each instrument play out? You know, all of this stuff, if you've been in, in this for your life, you sort of know instinctively. Mm. Um, and then crazily, um, there's the sort of technical side. I think we put 80 tonnes of lighting in the roof of the Westpac in order to get the right light levels on the floor of a sports stadium. 
And a sports stadium is great. You put you put floodlights on, both, and you know exactly you're going to get what is it, four or five hundred lux or whatever the level is, straight on the field. But if you're doing that with theatre lighting, you, you need and would the roof of the stadium take eighty tons? And would it take it? in one bit or two bits, you know, that again is a riveting discussion with experts. And could we afford to put 80 tons of stuff in the roof? Um, riveting, actually. So I think that whole thing, ultimately, tattoos come down to people and the extraordinary output of human beings, which is remarkable. And I think every day I was able to do, I was, you know, get that feeling that you get in the armed forces so often, This this absolute pleasure of dealing with just cracking people the challenge of dealing with awkward ones of course because that's a part of life (laughs) but really really special people coming together and i think that's the thing that has really been left with me and so i guess that's about relationships it's about forming relationships with one-to-one one-to-groups one-to-partners and and one-to-governments because tattoos inevitably have got to go to governments to seek their support for their acts, for their armed forces, for their support, for their patronage. Um, yeah, but Washington's doing a cracking job on this, I have to tell you. Um, you know, you're, you're doing really famously well on this. You're, you're building from a sort of, well, from an absolute you know, zero baseline, apart from the sort of professional experience you've all had. But you've built a wonderful community of support, growing every day. And I think there's so much to offer from what you're doing and, and you know, offering both Washington itself, the United States, but much more widely the sort of um, this business of cultural exchange of, of people knowing each other better. And if you know each other better, you, you, you get on better. It's, it's, yeah. it's more difficult to get cross with people that you know. Right. And right. so much of our world has got frictions and difficulties, and it mainly comes down to cultural difference. You know the, the squabble for resources and all of those things. If people were sympathetic to the other, or even understanding, not necessarily sympathetic of the other position, um, I'm not now being sort of misty-eyed and, and looking for a nirvana. But I do think that tattoos are an important part of our cultural landscape. They're certainly part of defence diplomacy. And they're certainly um, a showcase for our our nations and, and what we think is important. And I think. You know, tattoos do, I think, I'm so conscious that the social media and so much happening, life has become very, very complicated. And, you know, watching yesterday, you know, the crowning of a king um, in this country with all those centuries of history, that for many, many, many people is, is a banister rail. It's a sort of, you know, actually, we're still okay, this is fine. You know, politics will go up and down and economics will go up and down and socials will go up and down and all those things. But actually, this is still where we are, still where we are as a country. I sort of buy the fact that some people, you know, don't take the same view. But I think tattoos are part of that story in the same way as a national orchestra or a national dance company or, you know, um, you know, these wonderful trade missions and our foreign diplomats and so forth. It's all part of the texture of what we are as countries what our values are. And I think tattoos are an important part of that. I think, you know, there's a lot to be gained from them. I think you yeah. touched on it earlier on about it, having, a, having a tattoo family. And it's, you know, we, me and Mark met in 2010 in Sydney. And obviously that relationship is, is expanded. But it's it's the same, you know. I, I still keep in contact with people from the King's Guard who, you know, they only do a two-year conscri- uh, conscription. 
uh, and they've left, you know, 10 mm. years ago, but I still keep in touch with them. And, and it's, you do have a tattoo family and you will go to different tattoos and you'll meet up with people and, you know, it is that family thing. Then everybody, that's the one thing that everybody likes is this tattoo atmosphere you get, whether, it, you know, you're in the cast bar every night or whether it's in rehearsals or when you're having food or it's, yeah. that, it's that people you, ju- you just bond with. And it's only the people on that tattoo understand what you're going through and, you know, touching on the emotion like you said earlier on, you know, when you're on the finale and the music's just right, you, you remember these emotions and they'll go back to their whatever country they've come from and they'll remember that as well. You've got that, that mm. time together that other people... Yeah, I think it does. And I think, um, funnily enough, you know, you asked me for sort of some of my great memories. I have, I'm a bad painter. If you knew me, I'm a sort of learning to be an oil painter. And I'm just, I, I'm passionate about learning it. And I'm, I'm really enjoying it. My first exhibition is actually running now. I'm not suggesting you buy any of my paintings. But it's really nice to have pictures on display. And I have one amazing romantic picture that I remember. I, it's fleeting so fast you couldn't put it on camera. Uh, of, I think, a, a Scots Guards drummer um, uh, under the stands. And one of the dancers was just about to go on for the dance set. And they clearly you know, struck a relationship. And there was a, just a, a, a fraction moment in the half light underneath the thing where she um, looked up at him, gave him a peck on the cheek, and she then went off to her place. It was one of those just magical romantic moments. And if you take all the sort of cynicism out of the world, you know, it was just utterly beautiful. She was looking fantastic. He was looking incredible. They were beautifully lit. The whole thing was just fabulous. And if I was to do a portrait of the tattoo, it would probably be of that moment, I think. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much for your time today. I think this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, what are some things that you're doing now? What in retirement? Uh, what are what are what's keeping you active? So you're painting, you're advising. Whatever. Yeah, I've had um, I've had a few months. I've had both my knees replaced in the last six months, so I'm now entirely plastic and metal and composite um, from the bottom of my femurs through to the top of my tibias, which is very exciting. I'm looking forward to learning to walk properly again without looking like a pirate all the time that's that's great um i've got a number of projects on the go both at home and abroad um people have been very charming and and run up and ask for help and, and the nice thing about being a sort of individual now is i can pick and choose and, and be helpful where i think it's genuinely valuable i've got much more time with the family which has been stunning i've had you know most of my military life and my tattoo life i haven't had time really to you know to meet my children or my wife i am actually married and two children's a bit of a revelation during covid um and my paintings coming on and i do i love uh, chasing trout i'm a, a fly fisherman and that's my great passion but enough projects to keep my brain and i lecture and, and audit on soft power i'm very very interested in how countries present themselves and their values uh, i'm very very interested still in that and and i think the experience of being both in the military and now looking at things culturally i think is important and, and i'm enjoying doing that Fantastic. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, Stu. It's always a pleasure, my friend. And if everyone, if you enjoy this episode, check out the website, www.thewashingtontattoo.com or on all the social media channels. Please like, please subscribe. We'll have more great information and content coming out like this. And Brigadier David Alfrey, thank you so much for your time. And it is an honor to call you friend. No, oh, it's been it's been famous, Mark and Stu. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be involved with you. I think you're wonderful, and I think your organisation is just is reaching for the stars. I'm I'm so thrilled, and uh, yes, love this. I shall see you in Washington one day.
I'd love to. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bye-bye. 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 Hey, everyone. This is Mark Riley again. We want to share a great opportunity with you to get your business name out to our listeners. We are looking for individual episode and yearly sponsors for the Washington Tattoo Podcast. So if you love music, history, and want to support military veterans, please take this step with us and consider being a sponsor. For information on that, please email marketing at the Washington Tattoo.com.